1: This is a major achievement. With CBS News Chief Washington Correspondent... Major Major Garrett. Yes, CBS? Yes, hi. Major Garrett. Major, that's nonsense, and you should know better. Is Major out of the doghouse? (laughs) The answer is yes.
0: Welcome to the very best part of my broadcast week. I'm Major Garrett, host and creator of this program known as The Takeout. Again, coming to you from my dining room, as we have done throughout the entire pandemic, but I promise you, those of you who remember what this show was like, sounded like, during the times we were in restaurants in Washington, D.C., those days are coming back soon. We don't know exactly when. We don't know who the guest is going to be. But I promise we'll be getting back into that great atmosphere of having this conversation over a meal like we did when we launched this show more than four and a half years ago. Jeff Rosen is our special guest. He is the president and CEO of the National Constitution Center. We're heading toward Fourth of July weekend. It's a big weekend, not just in terms of recognizing this nation's birth, but also the president has said it's kind of a moment to think about our independence from the pandemic. We'll see how long that holds, if that's true, how we celebrate. But this conversation is going to be about what I think historians regard accurately as something of a miracle the Constitution of the United States, and what it did for us, what it continues to do for us, its infirmities, its strengths, and the not entire story. I would need five, maybe 10, maybe 30 episodes to do the entire story, but we're going to do parts of the story. Jeff Rosen, it's great to have you with us. Thanks for joining us.
1: Great to be with you. Too big a word? Miracle? No, it is not too big a word. Uh, The framers themselves thought that there was some divine providence that was looking over the convention. Madison couldn't believe that the convention succeeded, and it almost didn't. There were such clashing views about the power between large states and small states, uh, about the moral status of slavery, about the way to protect individual rights, that it wasn't clear that the convention would succeed, and yet it did. And There was that moving moment at the end when Franklin noticed the sun that was on the gold chair that Washington had been sitting on throughout the convention. And he said, throughout our deliberations, I wasn't sure if it was a rising or a setting sun, but now I am confident that the sun was rising. And that optimism was a sign of his belief, along with those of the other framers, that a kind of divine providence was watching over the convention.
0: And Jeff, as you well know, the conversation currently in America is that there was something so very wrong at the heart of those deliberations. You mentioned the word slavery, that that takes a good portion or ought to take a good portion of the majesty that we have historically attributed to that time, to that place, and this written document. How do you, how do you think about that?
1: The Constitution was imperfect but its ideals were more perfect. And that's why the preamble uses the word we the people of the United States in order to form a more perfect union. And that's why the constitution attempted to enshrine the soaring ideals of the Declaration of Independence that all men and women and human beings are created free and equal and endowed by our creator with certain unalienable rights, but that those ideals were not not fully achieved at the Constitution. It took Lincoln resurrecting the ideals at Gettysburg, Frederick Douglass in his immortal, what to a slave is the 4th of July speech, then the women at Seneca Falls insisting that women as well as men were included in the embracive promises of the Declaration. Then Dr. King on the Mall once again, invoking the promissory note of the Declaration, which he said could be fulfilled by the Civil Rights Movement, all remind us that the American constitutional story is one of evolution. It is increasingly embracive, to use the late Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg's words, But it's incredibly inspiring that all of the ideals that unite us as a people stem from the immortal language of the Declaration and the Constitution themselves. And they are the words that made us, to use Professor Akilah Moore's beautiful phrase. And they are what bind and define us as Americans.
0: And I think it's fair, and I've read this in many places, Jeff Rosen, President, CEO, National Constitution Center, that in its own way, in its place and time, the Constitution, the deliberations were in fact, in the arc of human history, radical.
1: Yes, they were radical. They were based on a radical premise that we, the people of the United States, have the sovereign power. That was a radical idea in 1787. In most countries in Europe, kings and autocrats had the sovereign power. In Britain, The king in parliament who had become a tyrant had the sovereign power, but the framers who read works of philosophy and liberty stemming from Aristotle, Cicero, John Locke, Montesquieu, Sidney, Bacon. These are the philosophers who Jefferson said he was distilling as an expression of the American mind, all of them were based on this radical premise that all human beings are born free and equal. and To enshrine that in a written text was also a radical act because uh, the US is the longest and most successful written constitution in the world. Um, In in addition to the radical premise of natural equality, um, the other radical premise was that of popular sovereignty the idea that no branch of government, not a king or a president or a court or a Congress, could exercise sovereign power, but only we the people could, and we parceled out bits of our authority to ensure that the ultimate power remained in our hands was also a radical idea. Another radical idea was union. The Articles of Confederation had been a collection of sovereign states, under the Articles of Confederation, uh, the states had the sovereign power, not we the people, and they, they just couldn't act in concert, they you needed unanimity to do anything, they couldn't uh, raise taxes to pay for the war debts or engage in international trade. The idea that uh, these 13 uh, colonies and states could cooperate and forge ourselves into a more perfect union where sovereignty was held by the people, was also a radical idea, and that's all of what made the Constitution such a remarkable achievement.
0: Worth noting, the radicalism had its limits. If you were landed and male and white, you got to vote, and you were the first and foremost participant in this radical concept. Everyone else was out. Is it a strength or weakness that people who were not included in that original limited definition of radicalism, got it over time, strength or weakness?
1: Well, it's of course a strength and it's a tribute to the power of the ideals themselves. And indeed, there were some exceptions at the time of the framing. Women could vote in New Jersey. Free african African-Americans exercised some voting and civil rights in five of the original colonies, as Justice Benjamin Curtis noted in his dissenting opinion in the Dred Scott case, completely blowing out of the water, Chief Justice Taney's ahistorical and infamous conclusion that African-Americans had no rights, which white men were bound to respect. So the truth is that the ideals inspired people of all backgrounds from the beginning. But as you say, it took a civil war. It took a women's rights movement. It took a civil rights movement to begin to make those promises a reality. And it's a tribute to the ideals themselves that they became increase, increasingly embrace over time.
0: About 45 seconds, we have to go to the first break. Did the framers intend, Jeff, to put that fight in the system, meaning if you want these rights under this system, you got to fight for them?
1: The framers intended to create a system for civil dialogue and deliberation so that we could peaceably resolve our differences, so that people of different perspectives could debate and deliberate thoughtfully so that we could be governed by reason rather than passion, and they had confidence that reason would eventually include more and more human beings in its shining embrace. grace
0: we will talk on the other side of this break about the clash between passion and reason and our constitutional form of government i'm major garrett jeff rosen president and ceo of the national constitution center is our special guest back for segment two in just one moment
1: what makes a life a good one CBS News, this is The Takeout
0: with Major Garrett. For your 4th of July weekend, we are talking about the Constitution with, I don't know if he's the very best, but he's in the top three. In my estimation, he is the best person to talk about this subject, Jeff Rosen, President and CEO of the National Constitution Center. You can read him just about everywhere. If you've watched any CBS News special report coverage of impeachment or deep issues dealing with the Constitution, Jeff Rosen's always there. I'm indebted to him for his time being with us today so um, Jeff Rosen how should we think about what the framers gave us this idea that we would be a society that would argue among ourselves there would have to be a fight for more rights and disagreements could be argued in public and you didn't have to worry about being sanctioned or imprisoned by the government for announcing and demonstrating your grievances All of that, how should we think about all of that, which we regard as our rich and laudable history, and January 6th, a riot and attempted insurrection at the U.S. Capitol?
1: January 6th represents the framers' nightmare. This is a non-partisan statement. It's a statement of fact to say what they most feared was armed mobs interrupting the peaceable engines of government. James Madison in Federalist 55 said in all large assemblies of any character composed, passion never fails to rest to the scepter from reason. Even if every Athenian had been Socrates, Athens would still have been a mob. What was he talking about? Well, he had in mind not only the large Athenian assembly where 6,000 people were so swayed by the demagogue Cleon that they wrongly launched the Peloponnesian War, but he had in mind the specter of something called Shays' Rebellion. This is a group of farmers in Western Massachusetts who can't pay their debts after the Revolutionary War, and they mob the federal courthouses uh, and try to shut down the courts because they don't want to pay their debts. And for Madison and the other framers, this example of violent mobs was the opposite of the kind of peaceful protest represented by the Boston Tea Party. The Boston Tea Party was also, uh, you could call it a mob, but it was a highly stylized, peaceable one where the colonists dress up and they go onto the British ships in order to prevent tea from being uh, loaded into the Boston Harbor because they didn't want to pay these tea taxes that they think are unconstitutional, but they actually take time to sweep up the decks afterward and to compensate the captain for having broken a lock because they wanted to respect uh, private property. Shays' Rebellion was different. It was literally a violent assault on the rule of law and on courts and government institutions created by democratically approved state constitutions. So That's why the framers set up the entire system, the whole point of the Constitution, is to slow down deliberation so that mobs can't mobilize, and by the time they do, they'll get tired and go home. That's why Madison thought the large size of America would be a really great protection for liberty. In a big country, it would be hard for mobs to discover each other, and by the time they did, they'd get exhausted. Um, And Therefore, he thought, Uh, reason would slowly spread across the land through things like newspapers, uh, which he called uh, engine for the commerce of ideas where enlightened representatives and journalists, who he called a kind of literati, would slowly deliberate with people so they could be guided by reason rather than passion. Now, even as I tell this story, it may seem a little quaint. Uh, The age of the literati doesn't seem like the age of Twitter. and Today, of course, we have Government by tweet, and we have um, Facebook algorithms that inflame citizens into the most extreme and radicalized versions of their uh, prior beliefs. And that seems like the opposite of the Madisonian faith in the slow commerce of reason. So it's clear that changes in new media technology, as well as political polarization, have presented a real challenge to the founders' faith but they would have been absolutely appalled by January 6th.
0: And we could do probably a full episode on the contrast between Shays' Rebellion and the Boston Tea Party, and we can't do that, and I won't do that, but I do want to burrow down just a little bit because it wasn't as if, Jeff, if I understand the history correctly, the grievances at the heart of Shays' Rebellion were imagined. They were real. Some of these objecting farmers did fight bravely in the Revolutionary War. They felt it was a unfair imposition upon them to have either their land threatened or their property rights threatened or to have to pay money that they didn't have. And they said, wait a minute, I just helped build this new country by fighting in this war. This doesn't feel fair to me. So I'm going to rebel the authentic grievance or the deeply held grievance isn't enough. And the method by which you protest the method by which you communicate to the government Matters then matters now matter to the framers. Am I getting that near right?
1: Yes, you stated very well, indeed. And as you say, these were patriots who risked their lives in the American Revolution. There's no question that they had a legitimate grievance. There was huge inflation uh, because the states couldn't pay their war debts and and this was uh, operating to their detriment. But the framers thought you needed a a peaceable way of resolving those disputes, which is why they created first the state constitutions and then the U.S. Constitution. A, A similar example of the need for peaceful protest is the whiskey rebellion that happened during the Washington administration. There a bunch of folks didn't want to pay these excise duties on whiskey that Alexander Hamilton and Washington had supported. They rose up in violence. Washington himself actually got on a uh, horse and led the fight against the Whiskey Rebellion. But and this is the important point, after the heads of the rebellion were prosecuted and the, the rebellion was quelled, Washington pardoned them because he thought that although it was a offense against the rule of law, and he was willing to raise the army to stop it, um, he he empathized with the grievances that were at the core of them, so that's the way to resolve our disputes in America peaceably. We, we you know we definitely enforce the uh, rule of law, while at the same time recognizing the grievances that underlie these acts of mass political protests. And let me try to sew these
0: two concepts together. We've talked about in this segment, Jeff. So the algorithms on social media, which intensify the silo news feed and the repetitive and reinforcing sets of thoughts as you suggested and we have pure evidence of this on the right and the left intensify a sense of grievance mobilize people in certain situations then you have grievances that are deeply held and then you have this superstructure this hierarchical structure that says yes you may have all these things are all true but you still have to respect the larger institutional construct of america and along with these grievances and social media has come what I think everyone in our society has recognized has been, if not the intellectual, the literal collapsing of hierarchies. How do we, and I'm not asking you to solve this riddle, but I want you to dive into it a little bit, because these three things seem to me to be clashing in an ever more combustible way.
1: They are, you put it well, and the whole system, as we've talked about, depends on on the triumph of reason over passion.
0: And buy in okay. to that process. You have to and buy how, into that.
1: That's exactly right. But, uh, reason requires some consensus about truth. The whole system rests on the idea of truth. Uh, Justice Louis Brandeis and his mortal concurrence in Whitney versus California, the greatest. Uh, triumph of uh, Free Speech in the 20th Century says those who won our revolution believed that the final end of the state was to make men free to develop their faculties of reason and that in its government the deliberative forces should prevail over the arbitrary. Brandeis is recognizing that you know unless we develop our faculties of reason and can converge around the truth, the system collapses. As you suggest, an age where people can't agree on the truth is one where we have a serious uh, Problem, and generally the truth depends on some uh, deference to expert bodies, people to scientists, to uh,
0: Hierarchy's
1: Got to sneak in there somewhere. <laughs> to, to, to some things are true and some things are false. That that that's a, a that's a hierarchy. That's why the framers thought that representatives were supposed to play a cooling. Role, they weren't just supposed to mirror the populist passions of the people or uh, mirror back to them their most extreme conspiracy theories. On the contrary, they were supposed to reason with them. And when constituents were wrong, the representatives were supposed to try to persuade them of the truth. In an age when representatives are deferring to their most energized and conspiratorial constituents rather than the other way around, we have a problem. And that's so how, so resurrecting. Faith in institutions and in um, truth rather than falsehood is an important democratic challenge.
0: That is the voice of Jeff Rosen, president and CEO of the National Constitution Center. I'm Major Garrett. Stay tuned for segment three of The Takeout in just one moment.
1: From CBS News, this is The Takeout
0: with Major Garrett. Hope you're digging the show. I hope you are enjoying this conversation about something that is a part of all of our lives. We live here in America. The Constitution is the rules we wrote down. And we turn to it all the time, informally and formally, to figure out how we're doing and how we're either living up to or failing to live up to what it set before ourselves and the world. Uh, Jeff Rosen, CEO, President of the National Constitution Center, Um, in not just our history, but in world history, how important is the constitution? Is it describable how important it is?
1: It's the greatest and most endurable document of human freedom in world history. There's no written constitution that survived so long or proved so successful or durable. It's Do we appreciate that enough as a country? Well, I don't think we can appreciate it enough, Uh, but the way I the way to appreciate it is to reflect on the alternatives, to think about the f- freedoms that it protects, to recognize its weaknesses, strengths, and failings. That's an important part of the process of perfecting it, of making the union more perfect, but ultimately accepting and celebrating it as a framework for deliberation. That that, that doesn't sound as um stirring as the words of the declaration, <laughs> pledging our lives and fortunes and sacred honor to rebelling yeah. or or even the soaring uh words of the Bill of Rights of the 14th Amendment. Congress shall make no law respecting you know freedom of speech. But simply being able to deliberate peaceably rather than taking to arms and slaughtering each other is a tremendous achievement in human freedom. That's not been the case for the great uh, democracies of ancient Rome, which fell as the framers recognized and ended in uh, tyranny or oligarchy or bloodshed. Uh, It wasn't the case for the uh, the, the established uh, religions that govern the the monarchies of europe for the middle ages and 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 even the enlightenment we sh- we we just can't take for granted the fact that we have a framework where for all of our polarization for all of the twitter extremism for all of the the the, 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 the passion that we see every day Generally, with, with the exceptions we've talked about, like July 6th, Americans don't take up arms um, and try to shut down the government. They, they're willing to accept Supreme Court decisions that they disagree with. They're willing to accept the election results that they disagree with. They must be willing to accept that if the system is, is going to work. And that's a tremendous achievement that, that is worth celebrating.
0: So you live at this intersection of research about reverence for and education about the Constitution. It's my sense, but I could be wrong about this, that the Constitution itself has become a kind of polarizing document more in the last 10 years than it was in my memory before that. I could have that wrong. I'm just curious.
1: I I, I think the Constitution is the unifying document. There's no question America, of course, has become polarized. And there, okay. there's an awful lot of polarization about the meaning of the Constitution, as we see in the Supreme Court, where there are, you know, important Five to four, or six to three decisions, but we've just ended a Supreme Court term where the court has been unanimous at a higher rate than at any time in recent history. Even despite the uh, the passing of Justice Ginsburg and the addition of Justice Barrett, and we saw remarkably the triumph of Chief Justice John Roberts's hope of presiding over narrow unanimous opinions jud- uh, joined by justices of different backgrounds. All of those unanimous decisions or nearly so seven to two are unanimous, upholding the Affordable Care Act, recognizing religious liberty, recognizing the free speech rights of that cheerleader on Snapchat are all a triumph of the idea that the constitution and the courts shouldn't be polarizing, and that in order to maintain their democratic legitimacy, citizens have to recognize that judges are not politicians in robes, as Justice Breyer said in a recent speech, and that the Constitution transcends politics.
0: If you're still with us, you care about this topic, and you care about the Constitution. So I'm going to give Jeff a moment to do a commercial on behalf of the National Constitution Center. Obviously, you can visit it, obviously, but you can interact with it. How and what can they find?
1: Thank you for the opportunity to plug this Amazing learning platform. Friends who are watching, it's so exciting that the National Constitution Center has launched this interactive constitution. Uh, it's gotten 45 million hits since we launched in 2015. We're now the most Googled constitution in the world. 500,000 people a day were visiting the interactive constitution during the electoral college uh, disputes. And on this incredible nonpartisan document, You can find the top liberal and conservative thinkers in America writing about every clause of the Constitution, describing what they agree about and what they disagree about. It's just a model for civil dialogue and learning. You can find the podcasts and videos and programs that we host every week that bring together liberals and conservatives for civil dialogue about the constitutional issues in the news. You can find early drafts of each constitutional provision and see how they evolved. And Maybe most excitingly for for, for, for the future of constitutional education, you can find the videos of the live classes that we are now offering on the Constitution, kind of civics 101 classes for middle school students, high school students, and adult learners. It's so meaningful to be able to teach these classes and, and share this light and learning. Um, and it's wonderful that um, people across America can access them for free.
0: So I'm kind of a pro at this. And what I've done is I've set up a springboard that I hope Jeffrey will jump on with uh, relish and vigor. And the springboard is this. Uh, You've had and invited to this process liberals, conservatives, and libertarians to think up and draft alternatives to our existing Constitution. This may take up all of this segment and our next segment. I don't care how long it takes because I've read about it. It's fascinating. There's the springboard, Jeff. Jump.
1: I'm happy to. What an amazing project that was. As you say, we convened three teams, libertarian, conservative, and progressive, of really well known scholars to draft constitutions from scratch. And the results really surprised us. Far from completely throwing out the current constitution, all three teams proposed to reform or refine it rather than totally abolishing it. But what was even more surprising was the areas of agreement. Remember, these teams didn't talk to each other. They went off in the state of nature or the state of Zoom and basically (laughs) talked among themselves. And, And They came back and it just blew our minds. The conservatives and progressives both proposed two amendments with nearly identical language. One of the amendments would have abolished the electoral college and replaced it with national popular vote with ranked choice voting for president. And the Second Amendment would have 18-year term limits for Supreme Court justices. Now, I just reconvened the teams and asked them, "Do you think if we brought you back and in, you met in person at the National Constitution Center, could you actually agree on wording of the constitutional amendments that you know we could then uh, offer as emblems for consensus and uh, for the world?" And and they're up for it. So uh, in next year, uh, we're going to convene in Philadelphia bring these great three teams together and hold an actual mini convention. We were talking about the rules and we think it has to be at least partly in private because Madison thought the original convention wouldn't have worked if the delegates couldn't have deliberated uh, you know, in, in, in private, and made compromises, but but part of it, of course, will be recorded, and then we'll see what we come up come up with. So it was just an amazing project. There were really interesting areas of disagreement, of course, as well. Uh, the libertarian team emphasized liberty, unsurprisingly. The progressive team emphasized democracy and equality, and the conservative team emphasized the Madisonian values of deliberation. Um, and they and they had lots of uh, particular provisions that they disagreed about. But that, that central agreement uh, just really surprised everyone and convinced me that there really is far more consensus about basic ideals in this country than...
0: 45 seconds before the next break, did the Libertarians have a thought on the Electoral College one way or the other?
1: Um, yes. The head of Team Libertarian said um, he uh, thinks that it encourages nationwide campaigning, and their general philosophy was... Um, if, it, if it isn't broke, uh, don't fix it. And the main principle that they wanted to em- embrace at the end of each constitutional provision was, and we mean it. They wanted right. to enforce the Constitution. As- <laughs> <laughs> and,
0: and we mean it. Uh, or, or as uh, my children used to post on their doors, stay out. This means you. Um <laughs> Jeff Rosen is our special guest President and CEO of the National Constitution Center More of our conversation about The Constitution, America, and the future of both When we get back, segment four Coming up, I'm Major Garrett, this is The Takeout
1: Man, that sunset is gorgeous Grill, patio, sunset Hard to get
0: better than that Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory While you soak it all in
1: Oh, burger time
0: So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you.
1: I could stay here forever.
0: Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today.
1: From CBS News, this is The Takeout
0: with Major Garrett. Welcome to our audiences on all the platforms, podcast platforms, of course, CBSN, SiriusXM, POTUS Channel 124, and more than 70 radio stations across our great country. Thanks for checking out The Takeout. Happy Fourth of July weekend, everyone. Conversation about the Constitution with one of the smartest and most eloquent people on that topic, Jeff Rosen, President and CEO of the National Constitution Center. I want to keep digging into this thing you did, this amazing experiment with progressives, conservatives, and libertarians looking at the Constitution. You mentioned before we went to break, Jeff, there were areas of disagreement. Summarize a couple of the ones you thought were most important and worth chewing over.
1: Well, there was uh, disagreement about how to nominate the uh, president. The conservatives thought that... um, you needed to have more deference to state legislatures to identify thoughtful candidates. The progressives wanted a more uh, democratic process. Um, The libertarians really wanted to enforce the limitations on congressional power in the Commerce Clause. That was their main, we mean it provision, which would have struck down a lot of the current administrative state. Uh, This is a big debate on the Supreme Court today and all those uh, agencies like the Federal Communications Commission and the Federal Trade Commission might be vulnerable under the Libertarian Constitution because they want less government. Um, There was uh, particular uh, provisions about how long the terms for president would be in order to encourage more deliberation. I think the Conservatives wanted a single presidential term without the possibility of the election right? to come. Kind of- yes, yeah. exactly, which is a version of what was originally proposed at the convention. One, one early draft of the presidency would have had a president elected by Congress for six years, and the Conservatives rec- resurrected a version of that, although they're open for the national uh, popular vote method of election.
0: And, Jeff, I want to talk to you about something that the Supreme Court has been dealing with with some regularity, uh, and that is the issue of immigration. It came up, of course, during the Trump administration. It has come up in the Biden administration. And I think what may surprise people, and there were even some cases in this term, is that there is tremendous built-in power within the federal government over this issue, and... The Supreme Court has deferred to that power. It took the Trump administration three variations of its travel ban, but once it got it within the 40-yard lines, if you will, the Supreme Court upheld this power. Talk to my audience a little bit about that, because I think it still surprises progressives that there is so much implied power at the federal level over immigration and how it is handled and administered and the powers that, resi- that reside therein.
1: A- absolutely. Um the Constitution says clearly that Congress has plenary and virtually unconstrained power over immigration. It can't engage in open racial or gender discrimination in ways that would otherwise violate the Constitution. But often those guarantees don't apply at the borders, um, as we've seen in some really shameful um, race-based exclusions throughout American history um, in the 1920s and before. And basically, Congress can do what it likes when it comes to immigration. Now, when it comes to the president, he only exercises delegated power. And the question with the travel ban was the same question with um, the DACA program, the Dreamers program. Had Congress authorized first President Obama to extend the DACA program and then President Trump to end it? And that had to do with kind of complicated parsing of the authorizing statutes that Congress had passed Mm -hmm. and disagreement among the justices about whether or not presidents trump and obama were acting within the scope of their delegated power but all of that is against the backdrop of the fact that congress can either say yes or no when it comes to any immigration issue and the president can only do what congress allows him to do
0: right and i bring that up because this is clearly a contentious issue for this administration it was definitely one for the trump administration it was a hurdle for the bush administration until congress acts whatever is on the books is going to rule. And the Supreme Court defers to that. And if you want different approaches, you have to write a different law.
1: That's a great way to put it. You know, There was a lot of support for DACA at different times. Lots of people in Congress and even President Trump at one point said that he supported it. But according to some Supreme Court justices, unless the authorizing language was clear and, and Congress refused to act, then the president couldn't do it on its own. and Then with with President Trump, it got complicated because the question is, once President Obama had uh, extended the program by executive order, could President Trump undo it by executive order, and the Supreme Court ultimately by a narrow vote said he couldn't unilaterally undo it, he had to follow proper procedures. So That had to do with technical questions of the Administrative Procedure Act rather than the underlying authorization. This stuff does get very technical, but it's all because of the underlying fact that Congress has refused to do much on immigration. Since the Immigration Reform Act of 1986, which was a very important immigration reform, there have been moments when it looked like there'd be bipartisan movement under President George W. Bush. Democrats and Republicans seem to be converging around a moderate immigration compromise, but they never passed it because of polarization. And as a result, the courts are left to interpret the language that's on the books.
0: And uh, this is, I think, a point that, is obvious to you, Jeff, may not be as obvious to those in my audience. The Supreme Court is an imperfect place to handle these toughest issues. And when Congress doesn't act, it is often asked to be the referee on these things. And it's been my observation that as long as we continue as a country to shove things in the federal courts, district, appellate, or Supreme Court, we're going to be dissatisfied because the best place to resolve these is through Congress.
1: Yes, the framers couldn't have said it better. That's exactly what they believe. They they believe that Congress would be the place that these questions were resolved. The courts would be the least dangerous branch, having neither purse nor sword to enforce its decrees. Nevertheless, as Alexis de Tocqueville famously said, every political problem in America ultimately ends up as a judicial problem. And As Congress has become more polarized and paralyzed and has wanted to pass the buck or just been unable to act, the courts either by choice or necessity have been asked to step in, and they've been resolving stuff that the framers didn't think they would, and few people are happy with the results, at least the losers uh, are not happy. That's why our Chief Justice, John Roberts has thought it's so important for the court to try to avoid really divisive partisan decisions whenever possible. If there can be a narrow ruling joined by lots of people, he said, that's better for the legitimacy of the court than a divided decision along partisan lines. That's also been a vision of Justice Stephen Breyer, and this was the term where Breyer and Roberts, and um, to many people's surprise, Justices Barrett and Kavanaugh, our newest justices, uh, joined with um, most of the others in converging around this vision, and uh, this is great for the legitimacy of the US Supreme Court.
0: And it's worth reminding folks that if you are disquieted by partisan polarization in Congress and you say, well, then the courts will resolve it, guess where that partisan attitude is going to shift? It's going to shift to the court because their decisions will be viewed more and more in a partisan light. And whoever nominated them. You will assume wrongly that that's always what they're going to do because they're essentially a part of the armament of the partisan who nominated them to the high court. That isn't the way it plays out, but we've begun to think about it that way in American politics, and we should rethink that. Jeff Rosen, president and CEO of the National Constitution Center, has been our special guest for our radio audience. We need to say farewell. Have a great 4th of July weekend. For those on the podcast and on CBSN, stay tuned for the Takeout Outtake. Especially We'll okay. see you next week.
1: CBS News. This is The Takeout with Major Garrett.
0: Welcome to your Takeout Outtake Especial. I'm Major Garrett. Jeff Rosen, President and CEO of the National Constitution, has been our special guest. Uh, Jeff, how do you become President and CEO of the National Constitution
1: Center? And um, is this the apex of your career? It certainly is the greatest uh, opportunity I could ever imagine. And I hope to have the honor of doing it for as long as possible. It's just so meaningful to be able to engage in this great project of nonpartisan constitutional education. It's so inspiring to be able to convene conversations that that civilly explore areas of agreement and disagreement. And people always ask, you know, are you optimistic or pessimistic? I'm optimistic about the future of America just because every day and every week I see groups of Americans, liberals, conservatives, Republicans, Democrats, middle, high school, college kids, and adults, productively and civilly exploring serious and meaningful areas of agreement and disagreement. and The whole thing hinges on asking citizens to view things through a constitutional, not a political lens. In other words, not asking what you think the government should do, but what the Constitution allows or forbids us to do. And When you ask that, you may find that your policy preferences and your constitutional views clash. You might think gun control is a great idea, but the Second Amendment forbids it, or it's a terrible idea, but the Constitution allows it and and that just takes us out of all the partisanship and and twitter passion of the current moment and makes us learn and grow and find surprising areas of agreement as well as respectful areas of disagreement so i just couldn't be more inspired to be doing this work
0: jeff let me uh offer a bit of a corny confession when i think about this and when i talk about it and i have a opportunity to speak with someone such as yourself I get misty-eyed about this subject. I get choked up about it. Do you?
1: Yes. I I just recorded a July 4th podcast with two great scholars, Akilah Maher and Steve Calabresi, and I I was choked up during it. I mean, they invited everyone at the end on July 4th just to read the declaration, read it with your family and your friends in your backyard or, or wherever. And it's so moving. The words are so moving and the ideals are so moving. You cannot study American history and think about their current meaning of American ideals and not be moved.
0: And that process is something that um, we can do. And at the same time that we celebrate it, at the same time that we recognize, as we discussed earlier, it's radicalism inherently, the miraculous way it came about. We could also ponder and reflect upon its infirmities and look at those infirmities and say, all right, what are we going to do about that? Not that it was rotten at its core, which is sometimes something that kind of creeps into the conversation.
1: Exactly right. Both of those extremes are, are, we've got to resist them. The constitution was not rotten at its core, nor is it a, completely impeccable document from the moment of creation that deserves unquestioned celebration. The Constitution is made for people of fundamentally differing points of view, as Justice Holmes said. It is an experiment, it is a journey, it is a process, and it's a framework for civil deliberation and dialogue that allows us together to make a more perfect and embrace of union. That's why studying history is so sobering and inspiring at the same time. And it's so important to dig deep into the history. I want learners and listeners, and I hope that all listeners will be learners just to dig in as deeply as possible, read those primary sources, read the philosophers who inspired the framers, read the great dissenters who, who challenged the injustice of slavery from the beginning like Prince Hall, the young African-American in 1777, who petitioned the Massachusetts legislature or Henry Highland Garnett, uh, uh, the abolitionist before the Civil War. The more history you learn, the more imperfections we learn about, the more inspired you are by the fact that all of these great dissenters were invoking the same ideals to create a more perfect union. And Then you're just inspired by the fact that the conversation continues all rooted in this unifying text, which is a shining example of enlightenment, faith, and reason. Justice Brandeis, another one of my heroes, loved to quote the prophet Isaiah, come let us reason together. And that is what we need to do as a country. And it's an incredibly inspiring enterprise. And it's what the constitution invites and inspires us to do.
0: So, Jeff, we do this with every guest. I want to invite you to take these three questions on. Every single guest of our show has answered them, and our audience loves the answers. You can take them in whatever order you prefer. Most influential book in your life, or one of the most influential books, your all-time favorite movie, or maybe one of the top two or three. And if you're going to really enjoy some music, I mean really, really enjoy it, what kind of music, artist, or genre are you most likely to listen to?
1: Wow, well, for most influential book, during the quarantine, I started reading the the philosophers who inspired the founders to try to understand the American ideal and choosing among them is, is just, uh, very
0: random, difficult. I understand.
1: I to, you know, I would choose one of the Greeks, either Aristotle's ethics or, uh, Cicero's On Duties or Tusculan Disputations were the ones that most inspired the founders. And then for the Enlightenment, not only Locke's two treatises on government, but his essay concerning human understanding actually turns out to be really centrally important for understanding the framing. Um, for favorite movie, gosh, I, I can't pick one, although I recently uh, rewatched a movie that moved me a lot as a Kid, uh, Patty Chavsky's Network really is very emotionally powerful. Is a really great
0: excellent answer. My yes. all-time favorite movie, the greatest movie ever made, because really? it predicted the future. All <laughs> movies, lots of movies, try no movie ever predicted the future, the lived future as well and accurately as Network did. That's my little commercial for it. I'm an evangelist for Network. You know, I I,
1: I burst into tears when I saw it as a kid, and because it was so emotionally powerful, and it had the same impact now. And for I, m- music is deeply important to my life. I connect to it um, very uh, uh, meaningfully every day. But I'll just tell you that uh, just last week, I listened to the Otto Klemperer recording of Beethoven's Ninth and the Ode to Joy at the end of this glorious recording. uh, Reduce me to tears. Uh, Give give yourself a spiritual experience and and listen to the Klemperer recording of, of Beethoven's Ninth.
0: Excellent. Jeff Rosen, President and CEO of the National Constitution Center. I'm going to leave you with this uh, witty question I was, that was once posed to me. It stumps me. Maybe it'll stump you. The movie National Treasure, documentary or mostly documentary?
1: Oh, you know what? I'm not going <laughs> to fix that one because I haven't seen it originally. I'll leave that one to you.
0: <laughs> you Jeff me. Rosen, it's been a pleasure. Thanks so much for joining us. Happy Fourth of July, everyone. I'm Major Garrett. We'll see you next week for The Takeout.
1: The Takeout is produced by Arden Fari, Jamie Benson, Sarah Cook, Ellie Watson,
0: Zoe Poindexter, and Jake Rosen. CBSN production by Eric Susanen, Grace Seekers, and Daniel Peebles. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at takeout Podcast. That's at Takeout Podcast. And for more, go to takeoutpodcast.com. The Takeout is a production of CBS Audio. If you like The Takeout, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go...